I have been gone for three out of the last four weeks. One of those was when I was in Grand Cayman and there was a, in the largest earthquake on record. Uh, that was really fun. Um, if you want to hear about that, um, I'm happy to tell you about it. There were no injuries on the island that I was that, that I'm aware of. So so yeah, amen. So so uh, then it's just a great story, you know. When there's like an injury, then it's like, hey, this was this awesome thing that happened, but somebody got hurt. But in fact, uh, no, that's not it at all. So and then and then I was at Trinity uh, Evangelical Covenant Church, which is one of our sister churches, and you'll hear more about kind of all of the things that we're trying to share and do with our other covenant churches in the area. And then I was back here, and I talked about something, and I don't remember. And then, and then, um, and none of you do either. Uh, and, and then, uh, last weekend was the best of all. Um, I was at Covenant Point Bible Camp with our high schoolers. And uh, we combine high school groups with uh, this other church in the area. Again, that's kind of like, like that, what I was saying, we're going to be doing a lot of things with other churches. The, the, one of the things that we do with other churches is we have a shared high school ministry. And that uh, helps us in two ways. One, uh, they have an awesome, awesome youth group leader. She is literally the best. She is a pastor in my life who helps me to, to reason through things. And this is the, absolutely the person who you want to be working with your youth. And so um, we don't have to pay her, but we still get her, you know? Um, so, so she's awesome. That's one really beneficial part of sharing a youth group with them. The other thing is that we have critical mass. So uh, our youth group was only just because of timing and there was certain, some students had just like an overwhelming amount of homework and they couldn't come. Some students are pretty new to the group and so they weren't quite comfortable to come yet. Some students had plays and recitals and things. And so from Hope, even though we have all these youth groupers, we only had two students come, but we still had critical mass because we shared youth group with them. But um, I say this to say, this was an awesome, eye-opening, transformational experience. And so um, that February, I'm sorry, February, March 8th event, where we're going to be gathering here with high schoolers, if you're not at all part of the high school youth group yet, and you're like, hey, this is interesting to me, or your parents are like, hey, this is interesting uh, on your behalf to me, um, <laughs> just, just come to that. And, and it's really informal. It will be fun. We're going to eat food. We're going to play games, and then we're just going to get to know one another. So if that's something that uh, is interesting to you at all, please let me know, um, and then make sure that you put that on your calendar, March 8th. Again, it's going to be, like, I like put it on March 15th originally, and then all the high schoolers were like, yeah, no, actually, I have this extracurricular and this extracurricular, and I was like, okay, 8th then. But this is how it goes. Sometimes we can't always be there, so it's okay. But um, I say this to say we're talking about something this morning um, that – High schoolers, I'm kind of like, hey, you guys just got a whole night or a whole weekend full of discipleship. You had four great messages from the speaker that was up there. This one, not super contextual to you yet. And so we're talking about marriage. We're talking about marriage relationships this morning. And so if you're like, hey, I want to tune out right now, that's okay. Um, that's okay. But uh, if you stay, if you stay focused in, if you tune in, I think that you can have something which is invaluable, which is that you can actually learn something about a marriage relationship before you get into a marriage. How many of us wish that we knew something about something before we got into it? Okay, we went skiing on this trip, and there was a lot of students who were like, hey, excited to go skiing for the, actually, they weren't excited. I was like, guys, you're excited to go skiing. And they were like, no thanks, Pastor John. And I was like, no, guys, I need it for my own personal affirmation that you go skiing. And they were like, okay, we'll do it for you. And I was like, great, okay. So we got up the mountain, and then, 
when they're down the mountain, they're like, hey, we know nothing about skiing. And we're at the top of a mountain. The only way to get down is on skis. You see what I'm saying? So you, sometimes it's really good to know something about something before you get into it. Okay? But for those students, I was teaching them how to ski on their way down the mountain. So if you, and, and they still learned, okay? There was some snow. They got cold. Um, they maybe got some bruises. None of our students got a concussion. Um, but they still learn something about skiing on the way down the mountain. So if you're a person who's like, hey, I'm in a marriage or I was in a marriage, it doesn't mean that you have nothing to take away from this. And just because I'm young um, doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have, to t have something to tell you, which is 2,000 years old. So it has at least 2,000 years of marriage experience. Um, which is roughly uh, 1,995 more marriage years experience than I do. So I don't know everything about marriage, but what I'm trying to do this morning is help us to read Scripture better, okay? I'm trying to help us read Scripture better. And so if you follow us on social media, I told you to bring your Bible. So anybody got, brought their Bible, and you can bring your phone too. The reason that I like having a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. Seriously, we got, them, we got them all over the place. They're NIV 84, which is problematic for a lot of reasons, but we'll, we'll, let you, we'll, we'll just give you one, okay? Better than nothing. And the reason, that I, the reason that I ask that you bring a Bible is because what we're doing today is we're actually going to be exegeting Scripture in a way that's a little bit differently than I normally do. I'm giving you a window into how I read Scripture when I'm preparing for a message. Because I could just give you my conclusions— but I think that when I'm, if I just gave you my conclusions on the topic of marriage, you'd go, hey, you just came up with this. And so instead, I want to I walk you through it. And then from here on out, whenever we're uh, talking about a passage, you can know, okay, so this is how, and I know that Phil exegetes scripture somewhat similar to me, um, although better, but somewhat similar. Um, but, you know, th this is the way that we can begin to talk about. So, so, so anyway, I'm, I'm going to be, we're talking about marriage, but we're going to talk about marriage in the context of learning a little bit how to read the Bible this morning. Because the Bible is something, it's a book that's incredibly hard to read. I know this because for the first 20 plus years of my life, I considered myself a Christian. I went to One Life four times as a, as a high schooler, okay? I was into it. I skipped volleyball tournaments. I skipped homework assignments. I skipped school once. Like, I went to one life four times. I was really, really into it. So I was super Christian, but yet I never read the Bible because nobody ever taught me how. Because the Bible is a little bit different than a novel. There are, it's a variety of types of scripture, and the type of scripture that we're talking about this morning is an epistle. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to it here on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can read along up here. Um, I'm reading out of the NR, NRSV. There's a reason that I exclusively read the NRSV for my own purposes um, when I'm exegeting scripture. I read a lot of translations when I'm just reading, but there's a reason why I go to this one and I could get into that, but um, I'm not going to. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. This is a good one. Um, and we're going to flip to the, the book of Ephesians, which is uh, way in the back of your Bible. Um, uh, after, what is it? Uh, after 2 Corinthians, right? Uh, nope, Galatians, Ephesians, after Galatians. See? I don't even know. Um, and we're going to be talking about chapter 5, which is, um, a lot of times we talk about the second chapter of Ephesians. We're going to be talking about chapter 5, uh, specifically starting uh, verse 21. And in my, in, we can get into this. 
the, all the headings that are here, all the verse numbers, all the chapters, those are added later, okay? But, but for the purposes of this, we're going to start uh, at the heading, which was not in the original translation, called the Christian household. This, somebody else came in and said, hey, this is what this is about. This is about a household. So, um, and we can disagree or agree whether 21 is supposed to be in there, but we're going to include it for today. Okay. Be subject to one another in reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the, bo- uh, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Now I'm continuing on to the next paragraph. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave up and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water and the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but nourishes it tenderly and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Just taking a pause here. Women out there, if a man has not left his father and mother, quote this scripture to him, he is yours now, not his mother's. Okay, continue. I said it. And the two will become one flesh. Wow, chicka, wow, wow. Okay. This is a great mystery. And I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. So say I'm going to preach on this passage. I read, or I'm just reading this passage devotionally. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read it top to bottom. Okay? I'm going to read it top to bottom because I want the context. And actually, I'm probably not just going to read this. To be honest, the entire book of Ephesians, you could, you could sit down and read in one sitting. I recommend it. If you're going to read a passage of Scripture, if you're really going to dig down into what it is, read the entire context of the passage to begin with. Now, if you're talking about Deuteronomy or Genesis, sometimes that's really, really difficult. You can't go all the way back. But in a letter, because that's what Ephesians is, it's a letter. In a letter, read the whole letter. Because if you can imagine, if you received a letter from somebody and you started in the middle it might be difficult to come up with what it's about. You might get it wrong. Is that my beard? That's something. All right. So, we're going to read, we read it all the way through. That's the first step, so that we can get the greater context. And I'm, I'm cutting this section out, and we're going to talk about the greater context is. But I have some questions here. So the first thing that I do when I read scripture is I write down a bunch of questions. Okay? Some of them you'll get to a point where they're somewhat obvious to you. You know the answers to these questions even without having to write them down. You can just ask them to yourself. But I write down a bunch of questions. Read with a a book of post-it notes if you don't want to write in your Bible or write in your Bible. Write down the questions. What are the questions that you should be asking? And these are the questions that stick out to me. They might not be the questions that stick out to you, but they are the questions that stuck out to me. Okay, you can take a picture of this if you want. You write this down. But these are the questions. One, Who is writing, and what is the context for that person? That's why we read the whole thing, okay? Two, who is receiving, in this case, the letter? And what is the context for those people? 
okay? Three, what is meant by saying that the husbands are the head of the wives? Why does that stick out to me? That sticks out to me because it seems to fly contrary, or it, at least it, it sticks out because it feels a little strange to me in this time, okay? There are probably times in the past when they would have read right through this and just read right beyond it and not stopped. But for me, and so understand, when you're reading scripture, things are going to stick out to each of you that may not stick out to me. Things will stick out to me that do not stick out to you. But this one stuck out to me. So that was the first one. Um, what is meant by calling parties to submit? That word's all over this passage, submit. Um, five, what is the complex meaning of the word love? Because it seems to say here that love requires laying down your life. Um, that's a little hard for me. What is going on here? What's going on? Oh, we good? Okay, we're good. I'm just going to, just tell me if I need to grab one of these handhelds. I could be like one of those, like, uh, what's that guy's name? The guy at that big church in Atlanta, or in, in South Car or North Carolina. I don't know what that guy's name is. Anyway, that guy's a really cool haircut. But he's always like this. He's always like this. So I could be like that guy. Um, but anyway, yeah, right? I'm going through like a lecture here, and I'm just going to like get really into it. Okay. Um, so five, and, and, then, and then these are the last three questions, okay? And the reason that I separated these out are these are the questions that I'm going to answer after I answer the first five. So the first five are kind of right there questions, okay? What are, what are they here? And then these are the questions that I think are kind of my takeaway questions. These are the critical thinking questions. You all know the SAT. I'm not talking about the SAT here. Okay, there's the right there question. What's the name of the main character? And then there's the critical thinking. What is the significance of this event for the main character, okay? So this is not going to necessarily be right here. There we go. Check it out. Okay, so then these are going to be the, uh, the kind of critical thinking questions, okay? So what does the author intend for women? How, how does the author intend for women to view and act toward their husbands? That's number one. Number two, how does the author intend for men to view and act towards their wives? That's number two. And the last one, I think this is the one that we always want to jump to before asking the first seven. What does this mean for us? Many people in my life jump into their Bible and they go, be subject to one another as in reverence for Christ. How does that make me feel and what's that about? What, what's God trying to tell me through that? And I think that that's a good question, but until you ask the surrounding questions, you are most likely going to get that question wrong. Okay? Cool. Glad we're there. So now, this is where I go next. I'm just going to uh, jump. I'll, I'll just skip this part. Yeah, you don't need to know all this. Okay. Well, no, you don't need to know all this. Okay. So then I read it in Greek, okay? And uh, you can read it in Greek, too. Do you know that? There's actually, you can type in, if you type in the words Bible interlinear, you can read it in Greek. It will give you word for word the English translation of the word. And then you can click on it. And you can see what all the other ways that that word has been translated are. You don't even need to know Greek in order to read in Greek because of the internet, which is awesome. Um, but, you know, if you have time, take Greek. It's great. Okay. Um, so, so then, so, so now we're going to start answering these questions, okay? So the first one, who is writing and who's the context for this person? Okay. So right there, the, Bi the Bible teaches us in, in the very early chapters, this letter, Paul names himself as the author. So what do we know about Paul? Shout some things out. Come on, help me out here. Who's Paul? 
Oh, he's from Tarshish. Okay, that might mean something to some of us. Maybe not. Okay, so he's a guy. What, what, why do we pick this picture of a road? He has this unique road experience, right? Damascus. Damascus road experience. So, he, so he's walking a lot. So he's a bad guy, okay? Villain. Just villain alert. Like, you don't have to read Greek to understand that he's a villain. Okay, he's a bad guy. Killing people. Other times he just holds people's coats while other people kill people. Okay? He's a coat. He's like Satan's coat rack. Okay? Like, he's like bad guy. Okay? And he calls himself Saul. Okay, and then he goes through what seems like a name change, not really a name change, but we won't get into that. Um, but basically, when he comes out as Paul, instead of Saul, when he starts calling himself Paul, he is the good guy. Okay, so he's a bad guy. He meets Jesus on a road. Now he's a good guy, according to him. Okay, and, and what else do we know about Paul? Well, we know that he's writing this. Again, this is right there in the text. I don't have to know anything about this. I just have to read the, the passage or read the whole chapter, uh, book, um, letter. You get it. He's writing this from prison. Okay, so that's his context. So he's this guy. He's writing this from prison. He was a bad guy. Now he's a good guy. And uh, one other thing here. Well, I'll get into that in a second. So, so this is what we know about Paul. We know that he is an individual, and we know that he lived about 2,000 years ago. So all the context goes to that, which we can't get into. Okay. Second thing that we have to ask is, who is the person that's receiving this letter? Well, it's a group of people. They're the Ephesians. That means they're the people who live in Ephesus. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought that there was just like a race of people, like the Ephesians, right? No. These are just people who happen to live in a city called Ephesus, okay? And so we have to know a little bit about Ephesus. So what, what, uh, what do we know about Ephesus? First thing we know is that they knew Paul pretty well. He had spent a couple years with them. So this is not like when Paul writes letters to people who he's never met, this is a group of people that Paul knew. So when he's talking to them, he knows exactly what their issues are because he was there. He saw it with his own eyes. This is like you writing a letter to somebody who lives in your town, a town uh, that you visited versus like you writing to somebody who lives in Due West, South Carolina. I've been to Due West, South Carolina, but none of you have. I know this because it's called Due West, South Carolina, and you've not been there. Okay. Um, home of Erskine College. Uh, is it my alma mater if I only went there for a year? Kind of, right? Okay. Um, so the Ephesians, this is an ancient Roman city. and or, uh, Yes, it's an ancient Roman city in around uh, the, the Greek peninsula. You know, it's just kind of where it is. And it, in ancient Turkey specifically. But here's, here's the important part, okay? This is what the, 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 key, the key takeaway. In Ephesus, there is a gigantic temple. And that temple is to a god named Artemis. Say Artemis. Great. Uh, now say Diana. Same person. Okay. And the important part about the fact that there is a temple here to a god named Artemis is that that is the most important thing about the city of Ephesus. Okay. When you talk about the eight wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis at Ephesus is one of them. It was one of the eight most important things in history. This is a massive temple. It was the center of all worship to this God anywhere. It was the, probably the largest temple that existed in the world at the time. It was massive. It is like saying, hey, you're from Orland Park, and not mentioning the fact that it's next to Chicago. That's probably the most central part about Orland Park. If you talked about Orland Park, you said, hey, these are all things about Orland Park, and you never mentioned that it was next to Chicago, you would not understand what Orland Park was. You would miss it. 
Like, hey, there's a train. Where does it go? I don't know. Right? It would, you'd, you'd completely miss the point. So that's, that's the most central thing. So Paul knows these people. They're in the ancient world. And there's a huge temple there to the goddess Artemis. Okay. And so then if we move on with our questions, we jump in. And I want you to remember those things, okay? Who Paul was, where he was. He's in prison. And who he's writing to, the Ephesians, uh, who, who live in this place where they are, they're trying to worship God. Yahweh, the Christian God, specifically through the person of Jesus. This is a very small minority of believers at this point. This is a tiny group of people in a place where everyone worships Artemis. You wouldn't live in Ephesus and not worship Artemis. It would be cray. Like, you wouldn't do it. It doesn't make any sense. Okay? So that's the important context. So First, the, the first thing I want to talk about here, or the, the, the first thing, the third thing I want to talk about here is what is meant by male headship, okay? This is an interesting point, because to understand the word head in Greek, uh, it's kafale. You want to say kafale? It's fun. Kafale, yay, it's a head in Greek. I think it's still the Greek for head, so you can use that. Um, but the important thing about this is that when we think of the word head, we think of many connotations in English. So the head of a corporation is the CEO or the president. The head of a team is the captain or a coach. The head, so you see what I'm saying? Like we, when we say head, we don't necessarily mean this, head. We, we, we have a bunch of metaphorical heads that also go along with that. That's in English. And here's the fun part. In Hebrew, it's the same. We have the exact same understanding of what the head is. Because the Hebrews understood that everything went through the head. They actually got this. Well, in the Levav, the heart as well. But they, they get this. So when Hebrew, the, na- the word is rosh. Can you say rosh? Okay, we're learning a lot of ancient languages today. You're not expected to know any of them. But there will be a test. But later. Uh, well, that's when you get into heaven. But anyway. Um, so just kidding, guys. Come on, we can laugh. It's okay. So the Hebrews, they understand this, this word the exact same way. Rosh. Okay? So here's the difference. The Greeks, kafale, they do not have the same understanding of the word head. So, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, which was a big production when they did that, they found the word rosh and arash, and when they used it as meaning leader, they translated it to archon, which is the Greek for leader. But when the word rosh meant a physical head, they translated it to kafale. So why is this important? This is important because the people who were actually writing the Bible at that time did not necessarily have the same understanding of the word head that we did. Now, there's another way in which the Greeks use head, and that is as the originator, okay? As the source. So the head is the source of something. So why is this important? Because when you read a passage like Ephesians, uh, what is that, 522, or 523, where it says, man is the head of the wife, or the husband is the head of the wife, if you immediately go to, that means that the husband is intended to be the leader of the wife, then what you're doing is you're playing with the English word for head, not with the word for, not with the Greek word for head. What you probably should say is, man is the originator of his wife. Not better, right? Well, kind of. Because, what did I say is the most important thing about Ephesus? The temple of Artemis. And their primary uh, worship style in Artemis was to have women dominate men. That was a literal thing. 
They, it was the, the men would come into the temple. Women would reverse their societal gender roles because women were oppressed at this time in the ancient world. They would reverse their societal, societal gender roles and they would literally physically harm men or they would enslave the men in the temple. It was the one place where women got to be on top and the men, they just were, they were scum. And they, they came to this theology because they believed that at the beginning of time, women preceded men. Okay, this is really boring for most of you. That's okay. But you have to understand this. This is why, this is, now you're going to go, I'm never reading the Bible again. That's okay. At least don't read it if you're going to read it bad. But if you're going to read it, read it well. Okay? So, what do we have here? We have the, 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 the place, the physical context where they're in where they have an entire theology built around one single fact, that women in their theological or in their belief system came before men, and that meant that women could abuse men free and clear within the confines of religion. Now, on the other side, Christianity teaches that we are to submit to one another. It's a profoundly different understanding. And so if we think about the word headship, Really, what's Paul doing here? Is he making a statement about who should be in charge in a relationship? No. He's making a statement about refuting a theology that shows that one person is allowed to abuse the other person. Do you see why this is important that we read this way? Are you starting to feel it? Because I know many, many people in relationships where their relationship is founded on the general principle that the man has to make all the decisions because, biblically, the man is the leader. And those husbands make terrible decisions. Sometimes men are their leaders in relationships. In my relationship, that's not the case. And actually, it benefits me greatly because I tend to be an emotionally driven person who makes quick, trigger, bad decisions. You can ask my wife about the renovation of our current home and all of the bad, quick-trigger decisions that I have made that have resulted in, for example, the entire flooding of our back porch. Because I make quick emotional decisions, but my wife, she is not that way. And so there are times in which in within the confines of a relationship, you have to work out who is the better person to make any given decision. Now, with finances, I tend to be a little bit more grounded than my wife. She tends to be very anxious about finances. And so if it's between uh, having, carrying debt and accumulating wealth in the stock market, she'll never do that because that's too high risk for her. You see, within the confines of the relationship, each one of us has different roles within leadership, but neither of us domineers over the other one. So we would be right in line with what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. So then what is it meant to submit? Well, that's the next question. What is submission? Well, in the ancient world, submission was different than slavery. Slavery is imposed rulership. I'm going to take ownership of you. When you say submit to someone, what you're saying is they're giving up their own rights to you. But Paul is, un, is, is not content with wives simply submitting to husbands. He wants everyone submitting to everyone. Understand, that's how this verse starts. Be subject to one another, wives and husbands, friends and family. Give up your rights for the other, everyone. 
So then he goes specific. Okay, and wives, specifically, you're going to need to do this. This is going to be hard because you live in the place where Artemis is and where the cult of Artemis is, and that's going to be really hard because you've never had to submit to your husbands in a religious context. So I'm going to reiterate to you, wives, submit to your husbands. But then he doesn't let husbands off the hook, does he? He goes, husbands, love your wives, which is really easy for us because we also say that we love donuts, right? It's easy to love your wife if you're using the same logic as loving donuts. But you're a horrible person if you're doing that. Let me tell you today, if you love your wife like you love pizza, you're bad. Stop it. Stop being a jerk. Love your wife more than pizza. If she goes gluten-free, try it. If she's on keto, try it. Love your wives more than carbs. If you need to get off of carbs so that you can live with your wife and not die, love your wife more than carbs. You see, it's really easy for us to say when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, and then all of the women in the room go, dang, that's really countercultural. That's not really how we do it today. Even though Paul is really saying, hey, look, be willing to give up your rights to someone, which, by the way, is also countercultural, much more difficult. Saying, why submit to your husband? So all the women in the room are going, ah, it's going to be tough. My husband's sometimes wrong. It's going to be hard to submit those days when my husband decides to fix the washing machine incorrectly and floods the back porch. That's what happened, guys. And then it says, husbands, love your wives. And all the dudes in the room are like, great. But understand, when Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives, he then goes on to say, hey, by the way, when I say love your wives, I mean love your wives as if they are literally a part of your body. Love your wives as if they are literally part of you. Hence the one flesh language in there. That they are literally like your arm. I don't know many men who do this well. And we need to. Because this is the form of mutual submission. I think Paul hits the nail on the head because men and women are different. This is the hard part for men. The loving somebody like you love your own body because men are incredibly like me focused in my experience. At least I am. Sorry if you're not. See, when you, but you, if you think of your wife as literally a part of you, and wives hold your future or present husbands to the standard, hold them to the standard, if you think of them as specifically a part of you, they will completely change the way that you view them. See, when something bad happens to a part of your body, you don't just like, sucks, right? You're not like, oh, I ch- chopped off my foot, like... Sorry, honey. I'm going to play some golf. Like, that's not what you do, right? Like, if it was was happening in your own body, you would completely change the way that you'd view that circumstance. When something negative happens to someone in your life who you love in this way, Paul's calling them to love as if they are yourself, then it is as if it's happening to you. So when your wife gets laid off, it is as if you got laid off. When your wife has pain from trying to move a piano with you, that happened once to me, it is as if you had the pain. 
the, understand this is a completely countercultural view at the time where it was thought of that women's bodies were owned by men and men's bodies were completely autonomous and of their own. For example, during this time, men could sleep with prostitutes legally, but women could not sleep with male prostitutes. That would be illegal. See, women's bodies were considered owned by their husbands, but men's bodies were considered their own. Understand that when Paul's doing this, he's going, hey, wives, submit to your husband. That's countercultural in your, in your faith community. Husbands, love your wives as if they're in your own body. That's countercultural in the wider community. You see, when we talk about these things, when we go to this stuff, and now we're going to go into what does this mean for us, because we're out of time. But when we talk about these things, we have to understand the context under which they are in order to be able to apply them to our own lives. Because if we fail to do that, if instead all we're doing is going to the Bible and going, okay, what does this mean for me? And I'm not going to think at all about what the original author intended. I'm not going to think at all about what the original author was, or original audience was receiving. I'm not going to think at all about the context of the people during that time. Then what we do is we wind up coming up with really narrow-minded bad theology that we use to hurt each other like a bludgeon. Understand, so when we talk about marriage, marriage is a time when we get to submit to one another and when we get to love one another. But if instead we use this language and go, hey, look, honey, I'm supposed to love you, which I do, because the word for love today means, you know, loving donuts. And you have to submit to me, which means that you have to be enslaved to me. What we're doing is we, we, we just use it as a bludgeon. We use it as a broad strokes to harm others, which is obviously directly what Paul is trying to counteract. He's looking at a context where some people are domineering over other people in the worship space, and, other people, and the other people are dominating over them in the public space. And he's going, this and this is wrong. Stop it. Husbands, treat your wives this way all the time. Wives, treat your, submit to your husbands this way all the time. Don't pretend like you have two lives. One in the temple where women get to act out their aggression on men because they've been oppressed in society. And one in the public space where men get to act out their aggression on women because they've been oppressed in the, in the faith space. And this is the thing. When we fail to realize that this is what we need to do when we're reading the Bible, then we look at the Bible to, for our relationships, for our, for, for our guidance, for our, and we make really, really poor, bad decisions about exegesis. And so now we're going to ask the question, which I think is the only question that you really deeply care about. But we have to ask all the other questions to get there. It's going to be hard. This is what studying the Bible is. Nobody said it was going to be easy. I have a master's degree in it, and I'm terrible at it, still. So we're going to ask this question. We're going to skip the two, what does this mean for the women, what does this mean for the men? I think we kind of covered those already. What does this mean for us? It means for us that when we go into relationships with people, romantic relationships with people, we have to view those people in the context of what Paul hoped not in the context of what Paul was counteracting. I want to say that again. We have to view people in the context of what Paul hoped, not what Paul was counteracting. Paul uses this word for submission that basically uh, it means humility and respect. So when you ask what is mutual submission, what is submitting to your, your spouse? Loving them with humility and respect. 
Can we do that? It's going to be hard. Can we do it? Can we wake up every single morning and go, how am I going to be humble and respect the person laying next to me? Or, in the case of I love Lucy, in the bed over there. Right? Asking that question, or for some of you men who snore, the guy on the couch. Right? This is the question that we have to ask. Every morning, wake up. Look at that person, or think about that person, if you're far away from them for whatever reason, and go, hey, how am I going to respect with humility this person today? And then, the next thing is, how am I going to treat this person as if they are an extension of myself? That's the love piece. Because I think Paul, I think that humility, I think that Paul also calls wives to love their husbands. Not in this passage, but other places. How am I going to love this person fully? Worship team, you can come up. What's the starting point? And then ask all of these questions for yourself every single day about everything. What's the starting point of the interaction that I'm having with the person at Dunkin' Donuts, right? How'd they wake up this morning? What's their context? What's my context? The same way that we exegete the Bible, we can exegete our lives. And we can come up with amazing solutions to problems that we didn't even think were solvable. If only we wake up every single day and say, how can I love and respect my spouse? How can I have a healthy relationship at home? And how can that lead me to being a better person in society? How can that lead me? If I'm not constantly trying to be affirmed by my spouse, how can I have much more time to do other things, love and support? And and here's the thing, and this is where it's going to get real here for a moment. It's going to be really hard. Really, really hard. If this is easy for you, you're not doing it right. It's going to mean that sometimes you have things in your life and pieces of your relationship that you don't want to address. Hey, we just don't talk about that. We just don't, we just don't go there. Got to go there. You got to go there sometimes. Because that's what loving someone and respecting them looks like. Holding them accountable is respect. You can submit to somebody by calling them onto the carpet and then actually listening to how they respond. And sometimes it's going to mean not only not addressing the hard things, or addressing the hard things that you don't want to address, sometimes it's also going to mean just getting deeper than you want to. Many of us work long hours, and we come home, and we want to watch TV and go to bed. That, unfortunately, friends, that's not what Paul's calling us to. Paul is calling us to something deeper. He's calling us to say, whatever it is out there, whatever it is over there, whatever it is in church, whatever it is in society, I have to find ways to connect on an intimate level as if this person is my own body. You don't ignore cancer in your own body or you die. You don't ignore problems with, within a relationship or else it dies. You have to be willing to see the other person as an extension. And honestly, if it's not a two-way street, you need to get help. Because if you're like, hey, I've been doing this, and I've been doing all of this, and John, you're saying it, and I'm submitting, and I'm loving, and all I get back is abuse, then you need to get out or you need to talk to somebody. Preferably get out first if it's physical abuse, and then go talk to somebody. 
Because that, ultimately, friends, is the call. The call is that in the most deep depths, it's always mutual. The submission one way is never how God intended it. The love one way is never how God intended it. And so if it needs to be Phil, if it needs to be me, if you don't feel comfortable with one of us, come to the other one. If you don't feel comfortable with either of us, ask for a resource outside of the church. Because this is what it's all about. This is where it starts. We cannot have healthy relationships outside. You cannot have healthy relationships with your kids if you're unwilling to address and sometimes walk away from unhealthy relationships in your life. That's what we're called to. Deep submission. Deep love that is uncompromising. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask for this challenging word this morning from your scriptures. We don't ask for easy answers. We don't ask for simple placations. We don't ask for quippy social media posts about how much we love our spouses on our anniversary. We don't ask for hallmark holidays like Valentine's Day, which trick us into thinking that we're doing it. We ask for deep intimacy, which exposes everything. We ask that you, God, who created us out of one another's side, that created both of us in your image, would continue to demonstrate that in all things, we are to submit to one another, we are to love one another, we are to respect one another in humility. Pray all of these things, Lord, because we know we need your help in it, because we are woefully ill-equipped by ourselves. Amen.